Beloved congregation, boys and girls, it says it so simply. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Last night we heard about the extraordinary circumstances that led to this moment. How God used the decree of an ungodly emperor to fulfill his word so that Joseph and Mary would come to Bethlehem in Judea, the place prophesied by the prophets that there the Savior would be born. As we heard last night, what an encouraging truth that is to realize that also today all the wheels of God's providence are turning in such a way that His purpose will be accomplished. And so it was that she gave birth to her firstborn son. That unspeakable moment when God entered history, when God in His Son visited this sin-infested planet in order that through Him God and sinners could be reconciled. And today we will see how that moment that happened in such utter obscurity, that moment that happened under such shameful circumstances, the eternal Son of God born in a stable and laid in a manger, that that glorious event would not remain unknown. And we saw in the verses that follow how God saw to it that shepherds, lowly shepherds, would be the first to hear of what had transpired in that stable in Bethlehem. And so, with God's help, we're going to consider verses 10 through 12. But let me read verses 8 and 9 as well. That all belongs together of Luke 2. And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, or behold, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you, is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And so what we have in this passage is the heavenly message of the angel of the Lord. First of all, a message addressed to fearful shepherds. They were filled with great fear. They were sore afraid. And the angel says to them, fear not. Secondly, 
consisting of good tidings of great joy. And of course, we find it in verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And thirdly, concludes with a profound description. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find that Savior as a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. So the heavenly message of the angel of the Lord addressed to fearful shepherds consisting of good tidings of great joy and concludes with a profound description. Congregation, who were these shepherds? Unknown to us, no doubt unknown to the vast majority of the Jewish people, certainly unknown to the spiritual leaders of Israel, unknown to the spiritual elite of that day. But they were known to God. And shepherds were really looked down upon in that culture. And because of the work they did, most of the time they were ceremonially unclean. And so those shepherds would have been the very last people we would have selected to become the first recipients of the glorious message that the Lord Jesus Christ had been born in Bethlehem's manger. It says it so simply that they were abiding in the field, watching over their flock by night. Oh, what a confirmation this is of 1 Corinthians 1 verse 27 where Paul writes, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty. Dr. Edersheim, who has written a wonderful, the converted Jewish scholar who has written a wonderful commentary on the Gospels, points out that it was very, very likely that these shepherds were keeping the flocks that were destined for the morning and evening sacrifice. That they were watching the sheep that were destined to be the lambs of God. Every morning and every evening, a lamb would be slain, pointing ultimately to the Lamb of God that would come in the fullness of time. So Dr. Edersheim writes this, that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem was a settled conviction. Equally so was the belief that he was to be revealed from Mignal Eder, the tower of the flock. And if that indeed is so, and most commentaries seem to affirm this reality, what an amazing place for the gospel of the birth of Christ to be revealed. What an amazing place that there the glad tidings came to these shepherds that the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God who was destined to be sacrificed, that that Lamb of God had come into the world and that He had been born. One thing we can be certain about, that though these men were considered lowly, though these men were unknown, they were not unknown to God. 
Because congregation, God never does anything arbitrarily. He sovereignly chose them to be the recipients of these glad tidings. Because we know later in the chapter that it speaks of those who were waiting for the consolation of Israel. There was a Simeon, there was an Anna, and there were many who were waiting for the consolation of Israel. We have every reason to believe that these simple, unknown shepherds, they were known to God. And that these shepherds were men who were waiting for the consolation of Israel, that they belonged to the minority who would be praying, Oh God, that thou wouldst rend the heavens and that thou wouldst come down. It is to these men that God sovereignly directs his angel. And of course, boys and girls, you know, what does the word angel mean? The word angel simply means messenger. And so when it says here that the angel of the Lord came, God sent his messenger. He sent this messenger specifically to these men. In Isaiah 58, verse 15, we read, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite one. And what's so beautiful about this history is God will never disappoint those who long intensely for the consolation of Israel, who long intensely for his son what God here did by means of his messenger, he continues to do until this day. Until this day, he continues to unveil the glory of his only begotten son to sinners who so desire such a savior, who so long for him. And so it is in the dark of night and it was really, not only was it physically night, it was a, a very dark hour. Pastor Kelderman addressed that last night as well. If ever there was a dark moment in history, this was it, congregation. For four centuries, the prophetic voice had been silent. God had not spoken. And it seemed almost impossible that all the prophecies in the Old Testament regarding the coming Messiah, that that prophecy would ever be fulfilled. But in this dark, dark hour, God suddenly allows the brilliant light to shine forth in the fields of Bethlehem in fulfillment of Isaiah 9 verse 2 where we read, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them has that light shined. And so suddenly, the heavens are filled with this awesome display of the glory of the Lord. It says, 
And the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. Now, in the Bible, that display of God's glory, that visible display of God's glory, is called the Shekinah glory of God. And God had demonstrated that glory all the way through the Old Testament. When he appeared on Mount Sinai, oh, that was surrounded with his glory and with his majesty. And many other occasions, he had displayed his glory. What's beautiful about that term, not only is it the visible glory of God, it is the revealed glory of God. But initially... The shepherds did not understand that. They were overwhelmed when suddenly they were surrounded by this amazing blaze of divine glory. They were exceedingly afraid. Just imagine, boys and girls, that you're in the dark of night and suddenly it becomes brighter than the day. Suddenly, they experienced what Paul experienced on the way of Damascus when suddenly the glory of God surrounded them as well. And why would they have been afraid? Why would they have been sore afraid? First of all, it was an overwhelming moment. But you see, when that glory of the Lord shone round about them, if ever there was a moment that they felt who they were, if there was ever a moment that they had a deep impression of their own sinnership, it was at that moment. And yet, what's so beautiful, that the angel hastens to encourage these men that they do not have to fear the display of that glory. Because congregation. This in itself is a marvelous testimony as to what happened when God's Son came in the fullness of time. Oh, His coming in the world means that through His Son, God unveils His glory to sinners, but not a glory that consumes them. Because we know that our God is a consuming fire, a God of infinite holiness, a God in whose presence we cannot be. And yet here, this glory is revealed to these sinful shepherds, not to destroy them, not to discourage them, but to encourage them. So we think of the marvelous words of 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, which are so very applicable here, where Paul writes, For God, and think about our, this passage now, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of of Jesus Christ. That's it. 
revealed. God reveals his glory, the glory, the beauty of his being. He reveals that glory, especially in and through his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why the apostle Paul begins the letter to the Hebrews with these remarkable words when he speaks about the Lord Jesus Christ through whom God has spoken to us in these last days. And he tells us that this Christ is the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. And so this whole concept of the Shekinah glory of God, the revealed glory of God, the visible glory of God, all of that comes together in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the beauty is that these sinful shepherds are not consumed by that glory. That's why the very first thing that The angel says to these men that were sore afraid, fear not, fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. It's interesting in the Greek that when it says that they were sore afraid, it says they were mega, the word megas, they were mega afraid, they were exceedingly afraid. But then the angel says, I bring you good tidings of mega joy, mega joy to counter your mega fear, sore afraid, tidings of great joy. But you see, congregation, it was precisely because they deeply sensed who they were in the presence of God, a deep sense of awareness of their own sinfulness that made the glad tidings proclaimed by the angel so very, very precious to them. And you see, congregation, we will never, we will never value the glad tidings of the gospel until we believe the bad news of the Word of God. It is against the background of the bad news about who we are as fallen sons and daughters of Adam, the bad news of our fallen state, of our depravity, of our corruption, our sin and guilt. It is against that background that we see the glory of this Christ who came in the fullness of time. And so we could say there was room in the hearts of these men for these glad tidings. God literally made room in their hearts. Those men who were sore afraid. Oh, what a wonderful thing it was to hear out of the mouth of that angel. To say, boys and girls, simply you, you don't have to be afraid. The reason you are surrounded by this visible display of God's glory, the reason you see all of this is because I have come as God's messenger to bring you a message of great tidings, good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. What a beautiful phrase that is for us to focus on also today. For that's what the gospel is, congregation. The gospel is God's good news. 
a message that is meant for all people, not just the people of Israel, but ultimately for all the people of the earth. Kelvin comments beautifully here, he says, God invites all indiscriminately to salvation through the gospel, but the ingratitude of the world is the reason why this grace, which is equally offered to all, is enjoyed by few. But the point is this. It is a message for all people. It is a message that is consistent with what God revealed to Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 3, when he said, Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that's why Christ came in the fullness of time so that through him all families of the earth would be blessed. And that's why, until this day, this gospel, these glad tidings proclaimed by the angel, they continue to be proclaimed to all people. And that is the great calling of the church, to see to it that we proclaim those glad tidings to all people, that we go into the world, that we go wherever fallen sinners are to be found and to proclaim this gospel also to them. But it's also very encouraging for us this morning because this means that this message of the angel wasn't just meant for the shepherd. No, I may stand before you and I may say to you, my dear people, I, as God's ambassador, I may bring you today, I may bring you good tidings of great joy, a message that is also meant for you. Oh, the gospel is so very personal. We need to understand, congregation, that whenever the gospel is preached, God is addressing you. God is addressing you personally. No one should ever doubt whether the message of the gospel is intended for us. No, these are glad tidings of great joy, which we may declare to you today. And if someone would have come here today troubled, by their sin, troubled by the reality of who we are in the sight of God, perhaps so overwhelmed that you wonder, is there still hope for a sinner like me? Is there hope for someone who has sinned so greatly against God? Is there hope for such a man or woman that I may, be, I may declare to you what the angel declared to these sinners. Oh, I may say, sinner, sinner, no matter how much you have sinned, I may bring you good tidings, a tiding, a message, which is also meant for you. That brings us to our second point. When we focus on the content of that message, the content of those glad tidings, for unto you, Again, so personal, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Congregation, this is what we call a, a gospel package. 
This is the full gospel wrapped up in that statement. In that statement of the angel to the shepherd, Christ in all of his fullness is unveiled to these shepherds. Because the angel speaks of a Savior, of a Savior whose name is Christ, of a Savior who was none other than the Lord. And all commentators are agreed that when the angel here uses the word curious, that it's clearly a reference to the name Jehovah. Curious in the New Testament is the equivalent of that magnificent Old Testament name, Jehovah. And so the angel is saying to the shepherd, it is none other than Jehovah. None other than Jehovah who has been born this day in the city of David. It is none other than Jehovah who has come in the person of this babe of Bethlehem to be a Savior. This babe is none other than the Christ. He is none other than the promised Messiah. And so let's briefly focus on these very significant names. First of all, a Savior. Now, of course, that title, that name, implies that there is a need for a Savior. It implies that Christ came into the world to save men and women who are utterly lost. Men and women who are perishing. Men and women who by nature are in their way to hell. Men and women who are laden with sin. And Christ came to be the Savior of such sinners. It's a very rich title. And this, the verb that's connected to it is found throughout the New Testament. And in its most simplest meaning, the word Savior means to make whole, to restore again. And how beautifully that explains to us the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, which he came to accomplish in the fullness of time. He didn't merely come to deliver us from sin and from all of its consequences. That he did. His name shall be Jesus, for he shall save us from our sins. But he came to make sinners whole again. He came to restore us to be what God created us to be. He came so that we could be set free from sin and all of its wretched consequences and that we could be restored into the favor of God, that we could be reconciled with God, that we could be reunited to God. He came to make us whole again. But what did Jesus say? The whole have no need of the physician, but only those that are ill. A very simple example. Boys and girls, Jesus said, as long as people think they're healthy, they won't go to the doctor. But when we are ill, when we are sick, then it becomes good news to us that there is a physician that can help us. 
And so we all need this Savior. We all are hopelessly and wretchedly lost in ourselves. We are all under condemnation. We are all under the curse of the law. But the tragic reality is that by nature we are blind to that reality. And that's why we don't desire this Christ. That's why we don't come to Him. And that's why the work of the Holy Spirit is so necessary to make room for this Christ, to confront us with our true spiritual condition, to show us our wretchedness and our sinfulness and how unsettling that is. But he does it for one reason alone, so that we will see our need of this Savior, that we will realize we need this Christ to make us whole again and to reconcile us with God. And then it says he is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the one for whom they had been waiting. Those that were waiting for the consolation of Israel. They were waiting for God's anointed one. That's what that precious name means, anointed. You know, boys and girls in the Old Testament, you know who were anointed with oil. Prophets, priests, and kings. And why were they anointed with oil? God thereby indicated that he had set these men apart for a special calling to be his prophet, his priest, and his king. And the oil was symbolic of the Holy Spirit, whereby God communicated to these men that by his spirit he would enable them to do the work they were called to do. And all of that pointed to the Christ, the anointed one that came in the fullness of time. And why is it so precious that this Savior, who came to save us from our sins, that this Savior is also the Christ? Well, you see, that really points to the work of restoration. I've explained that before. The name Jesus points that he saves us from sin. That's the negative, the negative aspect of his saving work. He delivers us from sin and all of its consequences. But the positive aspect of his work, that he is also the Christ, he, he restores us to what God created us to be. He makes us whole. And so let me again explain very simply. How did God make us? Some of you older ones know that. God made us in his image. And what did that image consist of? Knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. So God created us with the ability to know him, to be in a right relationship with him, and to serve him, to be devoted to him. Knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And when we fell in Adam, we lost all of that. And so by nature, we are now ignorant of God. We don't have a right relationship with God. And we are unholy. Ignorant, unrighteous, and unholy. That's our fallen state. But now the Christ has come. Christ has come to be a to make us whole again. And so what does he do as the Christ? 
as God's anointed one. As prophet, he restores the knowledge of God. As priest, he restores righteousness. And as king, he restores holiness. So that the ultimate outcome of his redeeming work, the ultimate outcome of making us whole again, is that we will ultimately, as God's redeemed people, we will again bear God's image. Oh, what a complete Savior he is. And so we could simply say, the angel is saying here to these shepherds, unto you is born this day in the city of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. His full name, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that name is the gospel in summary. That name is the gospel in all of its fullness. That, that name, that precious name unveils him to us as a perfect and complete Savior who came to save us to the uttermost. And therefore, to accomplish that, he had to be humbled to the uttermost. 1 John 4, verse 9, John says it so beautifully. And this was manifested, the love of God to us sinners, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world and listen carefully to what he says, that we might live through him, that we might be made whole again through him, that we might be reconciled to God through him. And I want to highlight briefly again what I already said previously. We need to understand, congregation, that in the incarnation, that sacred moment when God unites himself to man, that that in itself is the revelation of God's good pleasure. That union that was established in Mary's womb, that child who was born, God and man in one person, that reveals to us the very intent for which God sent his son into the world. He came in order that in him God and man could be reunited again. That's why the incarnation itself is the gospel. The incarnation reveals God's purpose. The incarnation unveils the good pleasure that comes out of his own heart, his desire to bring men back into an everlasting relationship with himself in and through his only begotten Son. That's why his name is Emmanuel, God with us. That's the mystery of godliness. God manifested the flesh. And so the fact that he assumed our human nature was not only so that he could suffer and die. Yes, that was necessary. He had to suffer in that human nature, but it means more than that congregation. And let me emphasize again that that union between God and man in Emmanuel is an everlasting union that endures forever. He will forever be God manifest in the flesh. In glory, he will forever dwell among us, tabernacle among us, 
as our Emmanuel. And what's so comforting is that in the incarnation we have the everlasting warranty of our salvation. That union cannot be broken. That union is secure. Oh, dear believer, in Him, God is united to you. And in Him, you are forever united to God. And nothing shall ever be able to separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Unto you is born this day, this day of divine appointment the day of God's good pleasure, the fullness of time of which Augustus was utterly ignorant. He had no idea that he was but an instrument in God's hand to bring about this day in the city of David. The city of David, Bethlehem. You know what Bethlehem means? It means the house of bread. So it was in Bethlehem that he, who is the bread from heaven, came into this world. He said it to himself later in John 6, My Father giveth you this bread from heaven. This day, in the city of David, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And so what happened? in Bethlehem is that the Creator became a creature. Amazing. The Creator became a creature because that is God's good pleasure. Oh, a message that is for you. Oh, let me emphasize it again. How very personal this precious gospel is. We have to preach God's Word that way. That's why we read about Philip in Acts 8, that when he preached God's Word to the eunuch, a one-man audience, it says it so simply, and it says it so profoundly, and he preached unto him, Jesus. That's my calling, to preach unto you these glad tidings of great joy, to preach unto you this Savior, who is so freely offered to you in the gospel. This Savior, of whom the Apostle Paul said at the end of his sermon in Antioch, be it known unto you. Men and brethren, that through this man, this Savior is preached unto you the forgiveness of sin. And how precious it is No one here today has to doubt for one moment whether God is addressing you. He wants you to know this, especially if we are under conviction that the Spirit of God, and sometimes we are even afraid, could this be for me, for me, for a sinner like me? Could God be gracious to someone like me? This is almost too good to be true. And then our sacred calling as God's messengers is to bind it upon your heart, sinner. In God's name, we proclaim these good tidings to you.
And finally, in the third place, it concludes with a profound description. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. This was necessary because without this specific instruction, the shepherds would not have recognized Emmanuel when they came to Joseph and Mary. Because we have to realize that when they finally came there, they saw two ordinary people and they saw an ordinary babe lying in the manger. This was not a babe that had a halo around its head. It was just an ordinary child. A child in whom you could see no beauty that we should desire him. Yet, when those shepherds came there, illuminated by the Holy Spirit, they saw in that babe in the manger, they saw this Emmanuel. They believed that he was the one of whom the angel had spoken. And yet, by these words, the angels gave them and us profound instruction about the spiritual significance of the birth of Christ. First of all, it emphasizes his genuine humanity. And that is so essential to the identity of this Savior, his genuine humanity. That means, boys and girls, he was born exactly the same way you were born. That's how he came into the world. He could have come straight from heaven. No, he was born as we have been born, to emphasize his true humanity, that he became very man, that the word has really become flesh. And yet, it happened under exceedingly humiliating circumstances. That's why I've said before, and I want to say it again, and it's necessary in our culture today, there was nothing romantic about that scene. There's nothing romantic, nothing romantic about the manner in which Christ was born. And Luke 2 is not in the Bible so that once a year we have fuzzy feelings when we read it. That's not the intent of that story. We need to focus on what is really being said here. That the eternal God, the eternal Word of God is lying in a manger as a babe, in a feeding trough for animals, in a stable for animals, because there was no room for them in the inn. A congregation, that's not arbitrary. No details in the life of Christ are ever arbitrary. This is meant to demonstrate to us the depth to which we have fallen. We have fallen, as human beings, we have fallen to the level of the beast. 
And most men and women in their sinful state live like animals. They live for one thing, for the gratification of the lust of the flesh. That's the level to which we have fallen. That's how deeply we have fallen. And that's why God's Son had to be humbled so deeply to be born in a stable and to be laid in a manger. It demonstrates the depth of our fall. And unless we recognize that, we will not marvel at this moment. Because this tells us how deeply you and I have fallen, but it tells us the amazing and unspeakable love of God that He willingly, in His Son, descended into the depth of our fall to lift us out of it. And so the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords becomes a beggar. And then, he was wrapped in swaddling clothes. We don't have to spiritualize that. The Bible is spiritual. And so this was, of course, a normal procedure. Mary knew she was going to give birth. So no doubt when she left Nazareth, she took swaddling clothes with her so that when the baby was born, she could do what every Jewish mother would do and wrap the babe in swaddling clothes. But why is it that we too, when our babies are born, we quickly cover them with clothes, do we not? Why is it that we get dressed every morning? I think we forget that sometimes. I forget that sometimes. The reason we walk around in clothing is because we're sinners. Clothing was God's idea. God is the one who prepared the first set of clothes for our parents. Why? Because they were fallen sinners. They were now naked. They were ashamed of their nakedness. And so here, the Lord Jesus Christ, the sinless babe, yet is treated as a sinful baby. And he's wrapped in swaddling clothes. And so even that he allowed to happen as our mediator because he descended into our shame in order that through him our nakedness, our spiritual nakedness could ultimately be covered. That's why we have to realize that the cradle, the cradle in which he laid that manger that humiliating set of circumstances was the beginning of a pathway that would lead to the cross. And so across this cradle falls the shadow of the cross already. This child was destined for the cross of Calvary. The cradle and the cross are inseparable. That's why such a gospel is not attractive to the natural man. This gospel would not have been attractive to the scribes and Pharisees who were so pleased with their own righteousness. But how precious it was to these shepherds. How lovely that babe was to these shepherds. How lovely he was to a Simeon and to an Anna. A stumbling block to the Jew, foolishness to the Greek but a lovely Savior revealed to us here 
as a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Oh, congregation, do you need such a Savior? Is that Savior precious to your soul? Do you need a Savior who has totally identified himself with your wretchedness, with your shame, with your fallenness, in order to make you whole again? That's why when the Spirit of God opens our blind eyes for who we really are, he does it for one reason. It's to unveil to us the beauty of this Savior. Oh, how precious that Christ then becomes. And boys and girls, you can still find that Savior. Oh, when the angels, when the shepherds heard this, they could no longer refrain themselves. And they hasted with haste. They went to Bethlehem. There was a deep yearning in their soul. They had been waiting for the consolation of Israel. There was a deep yearning in their soul to see with their own eyes of what the angel had told them. Because that's the nature of true spiritual life. It's that it is irresistibly attracted to this babe lying in the manger. And then years ago, this is not original with me, I heard a minister once say to the boys and girls, what I want to say to you, you can still find Jesus, but this is the cradle now. This is it. This is where you find Christ. This is where you find this Savior. This is where we can find him even until this day. And so, my dear congregation, what do you think of of this Savior. What do these glad tidings proclaimed by the angel mean to you? Does this Christ, this Savior, this Emmanuel fit your soul like a key fits a lock? For so it will be in the heart of every believer. And then, and by faith, as the, as the shepherds did, and by faith, we may behold the beauty of a Savior who for our sake, though he was rich, became poor. Oh, how precious that Savior then becomes. And what a matter of joy it becomes. And may we reflect on it today, that even unto us was born in the fullness of time, in the city of David, a Savior which is Christ the Lord. Congregation, is he your Savior? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we give thee thanks that we could be here today to reflect on the unspeakable wonder of the incarnation of thy Son, the fact that he humbled himself so deeply that he took upon himself our shame in order that we could be made whole again. O oh Lord, make room and continue to make room in our hearts for this Christ, that we too, with the shepherds, 
would hasten to worship him, to adore him, to fall at his feet. And that our true heartfelt exclamation would be today, O God, we thank thee for the unspeakable gift of thy Son. Bless us this day as we gather to fellowship with our families. We pray that we would not lose sight of the fact, the ultimate purpose of why we are gathering today. We ask it in Jesus' name.